Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Vang Me Manasi Pratishtita Mano Me Vachi Pratishtita Maviravir Maedhi Vedasya Maanista Shrutam Me Ma Prahasi Anenadhite Naho Ratran Sandadham Ritam Varishyami Satyam Varishyami Tanmamavatu Tadvaktaramavat Tvavatu Mamavatu Vaktaramavatu Vaktaram Om Shanti 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 Om, may my speech be established in my mind. May my mind be fixed in my speech. O self-manifested truth, do thou manifest thyself unto me. O mind and speech, may you be fit to reveal unto me the highest knowledge. Without forgetting that which I have learnt, may I be able to learn day and night. I speak that which is right. I speak that which is true. May that protect me. May it protect my preceptor. May it protect me. May it protect my preceptor. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us all. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all, and good to be back here. Uh, This time it hasn't been so long since I was here. I was here in October. Before that, it had been a couple of years since I'd been here, but this time it was a much shorter time. So I'm glad to, but it seems like a long time because uh, 10,000 miles has separated us in between times. (laughs) So, uh, and many things, uh, life is so different 10,000 miles away. Uh, so it's, uh, it seems like a long time since I've been here. So it's very good to see all of the, so many familiar faces and, uh, and to be in this beautiful setting. As you have seen, my topic for today is spiritual talk. And uh, that gives me a broad leeway to speak on whatever I like. <laughs> and that's why I gave the topic. Last time I was here in October, they had asked me a couple of months ahead of time uh, in Hollywood and asked me while I was still in India, they said, well, give us topics for your talks in Southern California. So I thought long and hard about it and uh, worked out the best that I could think that I, well, what I would want to speak. And uh, there were all sorts of interrelationships I thought of between the talks in the four different places. And I uh, thought, oh, this will really work well for a variety of reasons. And so I gave the topics. They were published in the bulletin. And I got here, and those were the last things in the world I wanted to talk about. So I I spent the whole uh, time in Southern California uh, fretting over the topics I had given and thinking that's not really what I want to talk about now. Uh, Which reminded me of uh, the Swami I joined the order under many years ago in Chicago in 1969. He had, before he came to Chicago, he had been assistant to Swami Nikilananda in New York. 
And uh, when he first came from India, he was given two or three months of no duties just to get used to being in America, get his feet on the ground. And then Swami Nikilananda came to the Swami one day and said, well, I need topics for your fir- or a topic for your first lecture. Next month you will be speaking, or two months away you'll be speaking, and we need to print the bulletin, so I need a topic. And the Swami, being used to the informality of Indian ways, <clears throat> said, how do I know now what I'm going to want to speak about in two months? How can I give you a topic now? And Swami said, well, no, it's not about that. You give a topic that sounds interesting that people won't come, want to come to hear, and when the time comes, you speak about whatever you like. <laughs> so, last time, I couldn't quite do that. I felt tied to the topic, and so this time I said, I will not give topics. And so I didn't think of a topic until this morning. Uh, last night, I was playing with three different topics. Uh, I hadn't thought of anything until last night. Last night, I was thinking of three different topics, and then I decided on one. And so what you get is truth. <laughs> the topic is truth. Uh, and I'll try to make it truthful, but the topic is truth. Um, I, for whatever reason, I like to take obvious concepts sometimes and examine them and uh, uh, see what they really mean things that we deal with all of the time, things that we talk about all the, ta- all of the time, and look at them more deeply. So today I wanted to do that with uh, the concept of truth. Or not the concept of truth, the reality of truth and how it plays out in our concepts. It's become a popular idea in modern days among philosophers and among common uh, people like you and me uh, that there is no truth. There are truths which are relative to different people. Everyone has their own truth. I see things one way, and that's my truth. You see things a different way, that's your truth. Someone else sees things a completely different way, and that's their truth. And so we can't argue among ourselves because we each have our own truth. And that sounds very much like Vedanta. It sounds very much like Vedanta, that everyone has their own path, everyone has their own approach to truth, everyone has their own perception, etc. But the problem with that idea, as it's been expressed in modern times, that there is no truth, there are only personal truths. That is, whatever I want to be truth, that is truth. The problem with that is that if that is true, that everyone has their own truth and there's nothing else, then there really is no truth. It's just whatever you want to think, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to make of things, then that's your truth, and that's it. Nothing nothing more, nothing less. You've got your own truth, I've got my truth, and you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. That part is good. We should learn to leave people alone. <laughs> that, that I appreciate. But it ends with the fact that there really is no truth. It's just whatever you make up, uh, then there you are. And that's our problem. We all live in a make-believe world. Whether we know it or not, we all live in a make-believe world. And that's our problem, is that we don't have truth. We have nothing that we know for sure. Everything is hazy. Everything is a mixture of perception and imagination. And so there's no, uh, nothing that seems to be solid in our lives. So that, uh, that brings us to the problem of complete relativity where if if everything or anything that you want to be true is true, uh, then there is no truth. Many years ago, when I was in San Diego, running the center there, I used to go to the bishop's school in La Jolla. It was an Episcopal private school, a parochial school, uh, run by the Episcopal Church, and I would be invited to come and participate in an all-day program on multiculturalism. It was a good program, a good idea, a good program that they had. 
On uh, one year I went, and I was one of three speakers. Uh, the, another speaker was an Episcopal priest, and another uh, speaker was uh, an activist. And I knew the activist, I'd never met the Episcopal priest, and uh, both were very nice people. And so as we began to get into the day, we each were given at one point, we were given a time to present our ideas on the topic. And so the priest began to say that uh, we have to accept everyone's truth. That everyone has their own truth and we have to accept that, we have to respect it. And so far, so good. And he began to develop that. And as we got into it, it began to be, or as he got into it, it became obvious that what he meant was that everyone's, everyone's truth is sacrosanct. And so one of the students uh, raised his hand and said, well, what about someone like Hitler? He had his own truth. And so the priest said, oh, yes, yes, you can't criticize. You can't criticize. He had his own truth. He had his own way of seeing things. You can't, you can't criticize. That, that was his way of seeing things. And so then the whole meeting blew up in pandemonium because no one was willing to accept that. And uh, so that's, the, that's another problem. If everyone has their own truth, and if everyone, uh, everyone's truth is sacrosanct, then you're left with contradictions like that. What do you, face, do, what do, you do in the face of, uh, of someone who is out to harm innocent people? What do you do in the face of someone who is dictatorial? What do you do in the, say, in the face of someone who is abusive? That's his truth. Can't do anything. You got your truth, he's got his truth. Well, no, that leaves us in a type of moral relativism, which is obviously destructive. Uh, so in Vedanta, we don't say that uh, there is no truth. They're just personal truths. There is a truth that is seen in many, many different ways, in an infinite number of ways. In Vedanta, also about morality, we say that, yes, that morality is relative to the person. But there is a universal running through the, uh, the relative moralities of each one of us. There, there are universals which tie it to a common universal morality, not laws of do's and don'ts, but the fact that if I hurt others, that's going to come back to me. If I do good to others, that's going to come back to me also, though I shouldn't think of it in a selfish sense, that I'm going to do good because it's going to come back to me but it's a fact of experience. And so there are the morality is relative to the person, uh, but there is a universal thread running through it. And truth is relative to the person also, but there is a universal running through it. So first, I want to speak about truth at the highest level, and then I'll come down some. Uh, recently in San Diego, a, a week or so ago, I spoke in San Diego, gave an all-day retreat, uh, well, most of the two-thirds day retreat, uh, on Friday and Saturday. And uh, on Saturday, at the end, when I was taking question and answers, someone raised his hands and said, well, Swami, the first two sessions were wonderful. I really enjoyed them. I was right, in, uh, right uh, there with you. And the third, uh, but the third session, which was the last session, which we had just finished, the third session, it was just, I mean, that was way out there, Swami. That, I, you know, I don't even, I don't know what you said, and it uh, made no sense, uh, and it seemed like nonsense to me. So today I'm going to start with the nonsense and end with the sense. <laughs> so, so that uh, uh, everything goes over your head in the beginning, just forget about it by the end, hopefully. But it shouldn't go over your heads, and it, uh, I'm not going to say anything that uh, anyone here is incapable of understanding. Uh, but I am going to start at the high end and, and work down. 
So truth, what is truth? We often have, again, we all have, not often, we all have many ideas about the truth and what it means. And many of us have ideas of truth which are rather austere and somewhat frightening, filled with moral judgment and guilt and all sorts of things. The truth in the Vedantic tradition, it, there are various names for it, but the most common word for truth is satyam, satyam, S-A-T-Y-A-M, satyam. In fact, the national motto for India is taken from the Mundaka Upanishad, which is satyam eva jayate, truth alone conquers, truth alone conquers. The whole saying from the Mundaka is satyam eva jayate nanritam, Truth alone conquers not untruth, or not that which is untrue, or that which is unright, because there a different word is used, ritam, which means both that which is true and that which is right, that which is good. And so truth alone conquers not untruth, or that which is unright. And so truth satyam, that comes from a Sanskrit word sat, which means that which is, that which is. So truth is that which is. Truth means that which is. Uh, and it doesn't really mean anything more than that. But if you understand what that means, you've understood everything. So it doesn't need to mean anything more than that. <laughs> Truth is uh, that, that which, which is. So what is? I'll come back, as I said, to more relative explanation of what is and how we approach truth. But in the beginning, Again, I want to take the highest standpoint of truth from the Vedantic uh, uh, tradition and explain that because that explains the relative positions as well. So that which is, that which, uh, that which is. Uh, the Vedantic definition of truth, absolute truth, the highest truth, infinite truth. And again, when you use terms like absolute and so forth, it sounds so remote, so cold, so impersonal. Uh, so removed from uh, human experience. It shouldn't be. It's right in the midst of our experience right now. But it says that which is true is that which never changes. That also sounds frightening to some and terribly boring to others. That which never changes. So the Vedanta says that that's true, uh, which never changes in, uh, in, uh, the, with the changes of time. Everything that we know changes. Everything that we know changes. Everything is in flux. That was one of the great teachings of the uh, Buddha, that everything is anitya. Everything is changing. And that's why everything, the Buddha said, everything is dukkha. Not because everything is misery, but because everything is unsatisfying, because it's always changing. You can't hold on to it. And so Vedanta says that there is something which is unchanging. In fact, that which is, is unchanging. And again, that sounds very strange, because in our experience, something which is unchanging, that's the definition of boring. When I was a kid, uh, we would wait all year for summer vacation, and then we would get summer vacation, and the first three or four days of summer vacation, I and my friends and brothers and sister, we would sit on the back steps of the house saying, what do you want to do? I don't know, what do you want to do? I don't know, what do you want to do? And uh, we were bored to death, and, uh, uh, because uh, there was nothing happening. And so our idea of nothing changing means something which is dead, something which is boring, something which is uh, a rock, a stone, a lump of dirt. That's the closest we get to something which is unchanging. 
The problem with that is that we're judging the unchanging from our human experience, where yes, that which never changes uh, in our human experience is that which is insentient. Life means change. Even the insentient is always changing, it's just that uh, the changes are so small and so slow that we don't see them uh, uh, happening in time, we see it over time, uh, but not uh, in short periods of time. But that which is, is unchanging according to Vedanta. Why? Let me first explain why, and then I'll come to the nature of that, and then we'll bring it down a bit so it's more approachable. Time. What is time? What is time? We have time, we have the concept of future, present, and past. The future is coming towards us, the present is right now, and the past is behind us. We're moving through time. We're coming out of the past and moving into the future. But can you show me the future? Can you show me anywhere? In any level of experience, can you show the future? Can you show me the past? If you take me to a museum and say, well, Swami, here's the past. It's been put in the museum. No, the past is right now. You're seeing, you're, I mean, the museum is showing you something right now. It's not showing you the past. If you think of the future, what's going to happen tomorrow? then when are you thinking of it? You're thinking of it right now. You can't get out of the now because there's nothing else. We have the idea of time being a, a moment going from the future into the present and into the past. But there's no future and there's no past at all. You can never, ever point to the future or past. If you say, well, people like uh, Nostradamus, uh, he could see into the future. Where did he see the future? He saw it uh, in the now, when he was there. He didn't see a future out there somewhere that was coming towards him. No, in the moment of time in which he existed, he saw uh, what we think of as what was to come. But he saw it right then at that time, which was the now, the same now that we have now. And so our idea of time is based on a falsehood. It's not even true to our experience. It's based on a conceptual formulation that the mind spins out in order to explain our experience. The same can be done with space, but I won't do it with space. That's a little more difficult. Time is hard enough. And uh, if you think about it, you'll see that the whole concept of time is based on a falsehood. It's based on a, something which is not even true to our experience. And so Vedanta says that that which did not exist uh, and then comes into existence and then goes out of existence, it doesn't really exist even in the present moment. It's an appearance. It's an appearance. And again, I'll give a, a definition of truth which is more in consonance with our present experience in a few minutes. But first, let me develop this. this we're talking about the highest truth here. That, that which never changes. That which didn't exist in the past, it exists now, and it's not going to exist in the future, doesn't really exist even now. So that, that goes even for planetary systems, galaxies. They came into existence in time, they appear for maybe billions of years, and then they disappear. But if they came into existence and go out of existence, then they never really existed during their period of uh, apparent existence. According to this definition, again, there's a reason why this definition is giving. They're not denying your present experience. They're saying that that which is absolutely true, that which is really true, is outside of the changes of time. And that's why it's not boring and that's why it's not dead because it has nothing to do with our concept of time. It's not temporal. 
Many people, including great humorists like Mark Twain and others, have criticized the usual idea we have of eternal life. We go and sit on a cloud and play the violin. And uh, if you ever really think about going and sitting on a cloud and playing a violin for eternity, which means in duration, for billions of years, you're going to get so sick of that violin. And the problem is that you have to listen to everybody else playing the violin also. <laughs> so, so if you want something scary, that's scary. Or if you think of uh, heaven as an eternal family reunion. Uh, <laughs> now that, uh, for a little while, yeah, it'll be good to see grandma, see grandpa and everything. But if you're stuck with, uh, with your relatives for an eternity, with no escape, <laughs> then that also is rather frightening. And so our, our ideas of eternity are based on this idea of time, duration, that lasting forever. But, it, but true eternity, and that which is real, that which is true, that doesn't endure through time. It's that which is right now, which is outside of the very concept of time, which is infinite uh, as it is. Uh, there's a beautiful name of Shiva in the Vedas, many names for Shiva, the deity Shiva in the Vedas, who represents the Absolute. And one of the names is Sadyo Jata, he who is born afresh every moment, he who is born afresh every moment, ever new, who is ever born, ever new. And so the nature of reality is that, because it's timeless. It's not been around for a long time, it's outside of time altogether. And so it's uh, uh, not changing in that sense, that it is, there's no need for it to change. There's no need for it to change into something else. It's eternal wonder, eternal amazement, eternal bliss. Anything that gives us happiness in this life, if we have too much of it, we get sick of it. Even the greatest pleasures in life, if we have it without stop, we think, oh, this is terrible, I gotta get out of this, I got to, I got to stop it, I can't stand it. But this is, bliss without end and without the desire for it to end. Because again, it's not within duration. It's timeless, uh, ever new, ever fresh, ever infinite. Infinite means there's no end to it. One of the problems here is that everything has an end. We can, we can form in our, our minds an idea of things and then we've known it and once we've known it, then it's boring, it's old. We want to be free of it. And so this is that which is never changing, that which is never changing because it's outside of time itself. So this is a very high ideal. It's not a concept, so we're explaining it conceptually, but it's a reality. And it's there in the midst of our experience right now. It's what we see before we see anything else. It's what we know before we know anything else. It's in the midst of every thought, in the midst of every action, in the midst of every perception, a great teacher like Swami Vivekananda, not like me, but a great teacher like Swami Vivekananda, he could reveal it to people, to an audience, so that people during when he would speak, they felt that they were lifted into eternity, eternity in the true sense. Once at Belarmat, our headquarters, the headquarters of the Ramakrishna order where I live nowadays, he was talking to his disciples. This was around 1901, and he said, he was talking about the nature of uh, reality. And he said, don't you see, don't you see, here in front of you, here in front of you, the reality itself, Brahman itself, here in front of you, don't you see it? And everyone that was there felt uplifted to where they had the experience of reality itself. Vivekananda used to say that the work of a 
fully illumined soul would be so quiet, so still, he would just walk around opening people's eyes to reality. And that's really what Vivekananda did. He went around opening eyes to, to reality. Once in Pasadena, in Swamiji House, many of you know this story. It's one that we've told many times in Southern California. The Swamiji House, which belongs to our Vedanta Society of Southern California. Swamiji was staying with the Mead sisters. And he was walking downstairs when Helen Mead Wyckoff, who later became known as Sister Lolita, the greenhouse in Hollywood is her old house that she gave for the center many years later. But she was walking down the stairs from uh, with the Swami Vivekananda. Swamiji was in front, she was behind, and suddenly she felt dizzy. And if you've seen the steps there, you can understand why anyone would feel dizzy. They're like this. They're going downstairs, she felt dizzy, so she reached out. Again, Swamiji was going down in front of her, so he didn't see her. He reached out, she reached out, put her hand on his shoulder to steady herself. And she said, as soon as she touched his shoulder, the whole universe disappeared. The whole universe disappeared. Everything, her own identity disappeared into an ocean of indescribable, what can be, what is called light, but it's uh, not, uh, not light as we know it. It's not a thing. It's not, uh, not anything that can be described. The whole universe disappeared and there was infinite knowledge, infinite love, infinite bliss, infinite reality. And uh, she said that she was in that state for a long time before she came back. Uh, she said, from that moment, Swamiji, Swami Vivekananda was God to me. From that moment, he was God because he revealed that which was real. So this reality has two faces, the personal and the impersonal. The impersonal is the way that I've been describing it because that's uh, the more easy to describe in philosophical language in a universal language of philosophy that which is reality itself. And those who seek that reality, uh, they're not seeking a relationship with it. They seek to realize identity with that reality, that I am that reality. I am that reality, that infinite reality, which is the source of everything here. And that's why it said one seeks to become one with everything. One seeks to become one with everything by identifying that of which all of this is an expression. And then one becomes one with everything. That is our true self. That's who we are. When I say I am, that's where that sense of I am comes from. The I am within each one of us. There's only one I am. And that I am which I am is the I am which you are as well. And so you don't lose anything by identification with that reality. You gain everything. You realize who you actually are. And so that is that which is unchanging again in this non-temporal sense. And that is the impersonal reality. That's the self. That's what is called Brahman. But that also is God, what we call God. Those who understand better, like more, the idea of God rather than the impersonal reality. Uh, it's the same reality. But that is God the Beloved. And for one who comes close to God... As one comes close to God, one begins to feel that same, that I'm approaching that infinite, unchanging ocean. An ocean that we don't want to change in time. It's that which is outside of time and that which is therefore completely free. Completely free, utterly and infinitely free. Infinitely blissful because it's outside of the destruction of time. And so when we come to God, we come to God who is that infinite ocean, but in relationship. The God of love. Love is what? Love is the approach to unity. 
Love is the seeking of unity. Love is the expression or the recognition of unity. It may start with the seeking of unity, but real love is the recognition of unity, the recognition of unity. And that is who God is, that unitary being who is all love, who is the very foundation of our being, and with whom we are one. And so the devotee thinks not so much, usually not so much in philosophical language, but more in poetic uh, language. That I lie in the lap of the eternal mother. I lie in the lap of the mother and look into her eternal face, which is all beauty, all love, all compassion. Uh, a look which one can hold for eternity, through all eternity. Because of its beauty, its wonder, its magnificence. And so that is why people seek God, because they're seeking that which is beyond the ravages of change, beyond the ravages of time. But that's often misunderstood, and it's misunderstood by other religions who are critical of this idea of Vedanta, who say that, oh, they're, thinking, they're seeking a thing which doesn't change, and there's no, no thing that doesn't change. No, there's no thing that doesn't change. This is not a thing. There's no thingness about it. There's nothing conceptual about it. There's nothing which is relative about it. There's nothing which is temporal or spatial about it. Uh, and yet, when it's experienced, it's known as reality itself. Reality itself. We can, we can seek it through knowledge or we can seek it through love. Again, I, was just, uh, I just visited uh, uh, people who had uh, two new babies. One was only four days old when I got there in Atlanta. And so it was a delight to, uh, once again, after many, many years, I've seen little children and babies even uh, you know, throughout the years, but it was the first time in many, many years that I had actually had access to a four-year-old child. And just to look into the eyes of the child, and of course the child doesn't have any small little person inside that feels self-conscious because I'm staring at it. And so you can stare into the eyes of the child, and the child stares uh, with these full eyes. The iris is filling the whole uh, orbit, uh, uh, staring back for the longest time. And uh, so that, even with a baby, it comes to an end sooner or later. The baby closes his eyes and goes to sleep or something. But the gaze into the eternal, that never ends. And again, it's non-temporal. It's the eternal now, the eternal present, where there's no past, there's no future, there's no sense of duration, no sense of passing moments. And so we look into the face of the beloved, look into the face of the Divine Mother, uh, and that gaze lasts forever. Or we seek to re realize the, uh, the infinite impersonal. So that has also been described as Satyam Shivam Sundaram in the scriptures, Satyam Shivam Sundaram. The ancient Greeks said that the three basic human, highest human values and the three basic human values are truth, goodness, and beauty. And that is the same in the Hindu tradition where Satyam means truth, Shivam means goodness, Sundaram means beauty. And that is the name of the reality. That is the name of reality, Satyam Shivam Sundaram, that which is true. Eternally true, unchangingly true, timelessly true. Uh, that which is shivam, which is all good. Not in the sense of good as opposed to evil. It's that good which is, the, uh, which is beyond all good and evil, relative good and evil. That which is infinitely, infinitely beneficent. And that is sundaram, that which is infinitely beautiful. Beautiful. And so when you think, well, all of this talk about an unchanging reality is boring. Well, no, it's also that which is infinitely good and that which is infinitely beautiful. 
infinitely loving, not loving even in the sense of a relationship, but love itself, the reality of love itself, the recognition of a blissful union which never ends. So we have to remember, if those of us who follow an impersonal path, remember that that is the nature of the truth that we are seeking. It's also a truth which is infinitely good, uh, infinitely loving, infinitely self-giving, infinitely uh, compassionate. In the path of the Bodhisattva, in the Buddhist path, in the Mahayana uh, tradition, uh, enlightenment is said to be prajna, wisdom, and karuna, compassion. Pragna and karuna. That which is pragna is karuna. That which is karuna is pragna. That which is wisdom is compassion. That which is compassion is wisdom. And so the same with satyam shivam sundaram. That which is true is also the infinitely beneficent and compassionate and the infinitely beautiful. So Swami Vivekananda gave a more pragmatic definition of truth as well. This was the absolute truth which again is present within our very experience. Uh, but he said also, one of his very important teachings was that the, the humanity travels from truth to truth, not from error to truth. That we travel from truth to truth, not from error to truth. Meaning that all of us are experiencing truth right now. All of us are experiencing truth. And so this was a more pragmatic approach, that each of us has the experience of the same thing, and yet we see it differently. And that which we are experiencing is that infinite reality, but we paint over it, we paint over it in so many ways. That's why Vivekananda used to say that Vedanta doesn't teach that this is all illusion. No, it's not illusion. It's an appearance of the reality. We're seeing the reality, and yet we paint over it. We expand it in time and space, in the concepts of time and space. Uh, and we paint it in form and color and so forth, but the reality we're looking at is the same. And so that allowed him to say, always remember that we travel from truth to truth, not from error to truth. Everyone is seeing truth, everyone. That means that everyone is a teacher. Everyone is speaking of the truth, even the so-called madman, the one who is seeing uh, hallucinations and hearing voices and so forth. They also are hearing and seeing something which is appearing to them. We say it's illusion because it doesn't stand the test of duration. It's just within his own mind and so forth. It doesn't stand tests that we can give to it, and so we call it illusion. But he also or she also is seeing something, and there's a reason why they're seeing it, and that also is a painting of the infinite. As I've said many times, I may not be a Marxist, and yet I can learn a great deal from Marx, because he had a very a brilliant mind, educated mind, and he looked at the world's situation and analyzed it. I may not agree with all of his conclusions, and yet from his standpoint he was seeing a truth and giving expression, expression to it. I may not be a Freudian, I disagree with some of his presuppositions about human nature, but Freud had a brilliant mind. He looked at the human condition, analyzed it, and tried to explain what he was seeing. And so his explanation also is one way of looking at the world. And so I can learn from him as well. I can learn from the man on Skid Row. I can learn from the, uh, the man on Death Row. I can learn from everyone in the world because everyone is seeing the truth in their own way. Now that sounds again like, well, everyone has their own personal truth 
and there is no real truth. But no, that's not the same thing at all. Because in and through all of those perceptions, there is the eternal truth. Swami Vivekananda said that he was convinced that even the child's babbling, the baby's babbling, was an effort to express the highest truth. Every one of us is trying to express the highest truth. Every one of us is trying to see the highest truth in our own ways. We may not have any interest in philosophy, no interest in religion, no interest in helping others. We may be very bad people or try out to harm people, cheat people. And yet, we also are trying to see the truth and trying to express the truth. It's just that we're doing it in a very extremely limited way. Uh, in time, life after life, we'll learn how to do it better and better until we can do it, until we actually perceive the truth. Then we'll find that the actual truth, the real truth, is like wearing glasses. I've used this example many times, and then it, the, the example uh, happened to me uh, just the other day. I've often said that if you wear glasses, you look through the glasses to see everything else. But after a while, you forget you're wearing glasses and you see everything else, but you don't see the glasses. And the truth is like that. That is who we are. And that's the first thing that we know, the first thing that we see. That's, uh, everything is seen in, through, uh, uh, and by that. And yet we don't see that itself. All of our visions of the world, all of the things that we see are seen in, through, and by that. But we don't see that itself, like the glasses. The other day, after just the day before, I had used that example to an audience, and then I was giving a lecture in San Diego, a retreat, and I got to the podium and realized, oh, I forgot my glasses. So I called someone, oh, oh no, it was in Hollywood. I called someone up to the podium and said, could you go to get my glasses? Then suddenly I noticed the rim here. I thought, oh, okay, it's happened to me too. Uh, so yes, that happens uh, to, to us if we wear glasses. Sometimes we forget we're wearing them. And so we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten the eternal truth, which is the very ground of our being, which is in the midst of all of our experience. The one thing which can never be hidden because it's self-luminous and it's all perfection, all beauty. And yet we look beyond it and see everything else. We don't see that which is the most obvious thing within our experience. And so that's what we want to get, whether we follow a path of devotion or follow a path of knowledge. And so everyone is, is seeing that in some way. Our experience itself is founded in that, whatever our experience might be. So we're all seeing the same things variously. Swami Vivekananda said, why are the Vedas true? Why are the Vedas true? Because I can realize the truths of the Vedas in my own life. I can prove them in my own experience. And so the proof of everything is experience. And so I have my experience now, and it seems very real to me, but a time will come when I'll see that, well, no, this way of looking at things that I have now is dependent on my own self-understanding and my own uh, degree of spiritual evolution. As I change, the world itself changes. Not that the world is changing, but a new world becomes revealed because as I change, I begin to see deeper and deeper into reality. Another example I've used many times is that of uh, Copernican uh, uh, astronomy. There was Ptolemaic astronomy, Ptolemy, the ancient uh, astronomer, who said that the Earth is at the center of the universe and the heavens rotate around the Earth. That's one way of looking at it. That's one way of looking at the universe. And you can even calculate the movements of the heavens in those terms, but it's extremely com complicated, extremely complicated to do. 
and to compute the and predict the movements of the planets uh, and the and the stars, thinking that the Earth is stationary and everything moves around it. Yes, you can do it, but it's very very complicated. Then Copernicus said, "Well, no, the sun is at the center of the solar system, and at least the planets move around the sun." Suddenly, the movements of the planets became easy to figure, easy to calculate. It was easy to understand. Why is that more true than the Ptolemaic astronomy? Both are perceptions of the same things. Both work, but because the Copernican view is simple, and that's a principle you find in modern science: that simplicity, elegance, symmetry, beauty—those are what the scientist looks for in a theory. They don't look for complexity. They look to explain complexity with the most elegant and simple uh, principle possible. And that is why, again, when one realizes the highest truth, either as God or as nameless reality, as the Divine Mother or as the Self, then one finds that which explains everything. Kasminu bhagavo vignate sarvam idam vignatam bhavatiti. As it says in the Mundaka Upanishad again, a student comes to the teacher and says, "Oh, sir, what is that by knowing which everything here becomes known?" That is that by knowing which everything here becomes known. Not in the sense that I suddenly can speak Swahili and uh, Lakota and other languages, but in the sense that I know that out of which everything has come. And I know the foundation of all languages. That out of which language itself has come. That out of which language itself has come. That out of which form has come. That out of which relationship has come. That out of which all beings have come. That out of which planetary systems have come. That out of which multiple universes have come. I've known that by knowing which everything here becomes known in essence. And so, uh, again, this idea that all of us have our own truth. Yes, we do. But those truths that we have now are not final because we find that they're not satisfying. That at the edges they're contradictory, and as we go further, as we go higher, we come closer and closer to a harmonious truth. Just as with Copernican uh, astronomy or Copernican uh, uh, calculation of heavenly movement, suddenly the movements became simple, predictable, in a uh, in a in a, a simple way that they had not been before. So Vivekananda said once here in California, Northern California, he said uh, that in my country, that is in India, people go down on their knees before someone who knows the Vedas. But that's not Vedanta. With Vedanta, all knowledge is sacred. Uh, the knowledge of phys physics also is sacred knowledge. And so that also is pointing to this, that everything that we see, all of our perceptions are a perception of the highest truth. It's just that we're not seeing it for what it is in itself. We're painting it, but we're painting it poorly. We're painting the same thing, just as a child, a young child with a coloring book, they can't stay within the lines. And so we're not staying within the lines also. We're doing all sorts of fantastical paintings. Uh, but eventually we want, we seek, because of dissatisfaction, that which the Buddha said was dukkha, dissatisfaction. We seek a higher and higher reading of the universe until we come to that in which everything is harmonized, everything is explained, everything falls into place. So there's the question of how to distinguish lower truth from higher truth, and, uh, and even higher truths from the ultimate truth. Again, because the ultimate truth is that in which everything stands revealed. Everything stands revealed. One who attains to that 
those who have attained it uh, have for thousands of years affirmed that one who attains to that knows the secret of everything, the heart of everything, the reality of everything. And in that, everything stands explained. And how do you go beyond the infinite? Not the infinites of mathematics, like the infinite set of integers. The infinite set of integers is not infinite. It just goes on forever. Uh, but it doesn't include fractions. And so how it's not infinite, it's limited by fractions and other things that are outside of integers. The infinite set of all numbers, whole, uh, all rational and irrational num numbers, that also is not infinite. It's bounded to numbers. It doesn't include other things. But this is the infinite which is the true infinite, that which is unbounded by anything, unbounded by anything within time and space, and out of which everything has come. And so we distinguish lower truth from higher truth, from that which is more harmonious, that which brings us more satisfaction, uh, lasting satisfaction, that which brings more understanding. And so as we go from level to level of experience, we find, yes, I go from truth to truth, but from lower truth to higher truth. And yet our journey doesn't end until we can find that. But even those of us who are on a spiritual path, like those of us who are here, uh, who have not attained to the highest, as we approach the divine through the self or through God, we begin to get a feeling of that which is eternal, that which doesn't change. We begin to feel a steadiness, an internal inviolability. We begin to feel that as uh, has been said comically, but we feel it seriously, that wherever I go, there I am. Yes, we feel that I don't go anywhere. This body may travel in relationship to many other things, but I am where I always was throughout eternity and where I always will be. If we begin to get that sense, then we're not afraid of anything. We can stand in the face of the destruction of everything that we know, including our own bodies. Uh, and minds and say, I go nowhere. I am the eternal light which illumines everything. It's because of me that the sun shines. It's because of me that the moon shines. Not in an egotistical sense, but in a sense that can be said for everyone and everything, every, any conscious existence. So let me say just a couple of other things and then close. One is, I'll just say a word because time is up. I'll say a word about verbal truth. And that is verbal truth means that why should we be truthful? We've talked about absolute truth and then the truth of everyone's experience, but why should I be truthful in my speech? Because in that way, the mind and heart become pure. We find that if I am truthful, then my eyes begin to clarify. I begin to see things as they are. If I'm always hiding things and if I'm always manipulating things and if I'm always being untruthful and I'm always being deceptive, my mind itself becomes uh, deceptive by nature. And then I myself am the one who is most deceived. The mind becomes cloudy. I can't see things clearly. And so, yes, I'm seeing the same truth as everyone else. And yet I'm seeing that truth through dense smoke, through dense clouds. And so truthfulness is a way to approach truth itself. It's a way to approach God and a way to approach the, the infinite. Sri Ramakrishna said that the one who speaks truth always uh, stands in the lap of God or sits in the lap of God. And then let me say a few more words and then I'll close about the power of truth. The power of truth. The closer we come to the truth in our spiritual lives, again, either as God or as self or as reality, the three main, main ways of thinking of truth, one is as reality, the impersonal way, which includes the self or Brahman, etc. Another is as God, that is, as person. And a third is as a state, 
That's what, in general, you find in uh, the Buddhist tradition. Now, the, the, they will rightly say that we're not talking as enlightenment is not a state. But the problem with language is, if we use positive language, we, you have to use relative terms. And so in that sense, uh, the B Buddhists seek the state of enlightenment, which is a beyond any state, uh, but it's spoken of in terms of a state. Reality in the Vedantic sense is not reality. There are no words that go there. There's nothing that, that can describe it. And yet, if we speak of it positively, it's reality. And the same with God. If you realize God, God doesn't have a name tag that says God. Uh, you realize that loving reality, which is beyond all names and all uh, uh, forms. So when, if we begin to come close to truth in any of those ways, then we begin to feel again that inviolability. And then we begin to feel an inner power, not a power over others, but a, again, a fearlessness, a strength, that will hold us in the face of all the uh, dangers in the world, all uh, disasters in the world. And that's something that the world needs more now than ever before. I knew many disciples of Holy Mother, and one of the things you saw about them was that they were completely fearless, completely fearless. Why? Because the Holy Mother had told them, always remember that you have a mother. And that mother was the infinite reality itself, the Divine Mother, who is the infinite reality. Always remember that you have a mother. So these swamis that I knew, and it was true of the lay people also, but I knew many swamis that were her disciples. They knew that I, my mother is the infinite itself. There's nothing whatsoever that can touch me. Nothing whatsoever. So we begin to get what is called soul power. We begin to get soul power and fearlessness. And when we have that, then we can speak truth to power also. If we don't have that, speaking truth to power is often just hateful speech and angry speech and so forth. It may be justified from an ordinary standpoint, but it doesn't do us much good. But as we develop inner power, we find that, yes, we can face down the whole universe, not with hatred, not with anger, but with love. We can stand before a cannon. We can stand before a tank and say, no, this is not true. This is not right. I will stand here. You, yes, you can run over me with a tank. You can kill this body, but you can't kill me. Uh, so you get to that type of power, soul power, which is really able to speak truth to power. And that also is necessary now in a way that has never been necessary. And I'm not speaking about particular political situations, but all over the world, people feel that now more than ever, the world is becoming insane. There seems to be an insanity gra uh, grasping or an insanity in pervading the whole world. Everywhere you find that the things seem to be going wrong. And so now more than ever, we need truth. We need to be able to stand on truth. Swami Vivekananda said that what we need are a hundred men and women who can stand out in the street and say, I have nothing but God. I have nothing but God. Fearless, fearless of power, fearless of... Uh, anything, able to stand on the truth. And that's, uh, that's what we need. Nowadays, there are many people who are moved to activism, and that's good. There are many, many things that can be done which are good, many things we can dedicate ourselves to which are good. But we have first to remember that let me develop love for all, because no one is different from me. No one is a stranger, as Holy Mother said. No one is a stranger. If I can contain the whole world within a boundless, unlimited love, 
then I will have true strength, and then I will know how to address the problems of the world. Before that, I just find myself frustrated and flailing my arms, trying to, trying to do things. But no, if we begin to love everyone, let me, lo let me uh, love the abuser as well as the abused, not to empower the abuser, but to see the abuser within a context of larger love, so that then I will know how to stand against the abuse. Let me learn to hold all within love, and then, uh, then I will find myself closer to God, closer to the self, and then I'll find that I have the inner strength to face whatever problem comes my way, whatever problem comes my way, that I will be able to, to, stand it, uh, to, 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 to stand within the truth which never changes. So, to conclude, there's the infinite truth which expresses itself as the reality, as the self, as Brahman, that which I am and that which everyone is, the same reality, which expresses itself as God, the beloved, which expresses itself as the state of enlightenment. It's all ultimately the same. And if we come to that, we see it all as the same, whether we see it as the state of enlightenment or the self or God. But that is what we're all seeing. Everything, everyone here sees the same reality, but we just paint it. But in and through everything that we see, in and through every action, in and through every thought, that is being expressed. And so let us learn to refocus our perception so that instead of looking through the glasses and missing them, we see that which is the container of everything, that in which everything exists, and that which is the source of everything, and that which is the harmony behind everything, in which everything lives, moves, and has its being. Om Dyo Shanti Antariksham Shanti Prithivi Shanti Apashanti Oshadaya Shanti Vanaspataya Shanti Vishwe Deva Shanti Brahma Shanti Sarvam Shanti Shanti Reva Shanti Sama Shanti Redhi Om Shanti 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 Peace is in the heavens, peace is in the sky, peace is on earth, peace is in the waters, peace in the plants and the trees. The gods are peace, peace is the nature of truth, all is peace, peace alone, peace. May that peace, real peace, be with us all. Om peace, peace. Peace be unto us and to all the beings of the universe. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.